Welcome to another episode of Frontline Health by CenturionLabs.com. Today, we're going to review seven health headline highlights that we've come across in the month of February to give you just a quick cross-section of what happened in the world of health this month. Before we dive into these headlines, remember to subscribe to the Frontline Health Podcast in order to get all of our current episodes. Our headlines this month cover measles, COVID, pregnancy, dementia, and a new perspective on treating ACL injuries. ACL knee injuries, which could leave you, if you're anything like me, both shocked, curious, and angry. Our first headline from the month of February is measles cases reported in eight states and counting. Cases of measles have been cropping up in Delaware, New Jersey, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Washington State, with additional cases reported in the past week in Ohio and Maryland. In the Maryland case, the Department of Health warned the public about possible exposure at Dulles International Airport. Officials in Philadelphia at the end of January confirmed at least nine known cases in that city alone. It's concerning because measles were declared eliminated in the year 2000 by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And they said that it was eliminated because of vaccines and herd immunity. In all of 2023, there was a total of 58 measles cases reported in 20 states. However, in just the first 25 days of 2024, we've had nine measles cases reported or recorded in four states as per the CDC data. As an acute viral respiratory illness, measles can be characterized by fever as high as 105 degrees and malaise runny nose, cough, pink eye, and a raised skin rash. And as many as 90% of susceptible people with close contact to an infected measles patient will will develop the disease, according to the CDC. And that is just further reason why we need to make sure that we're taking ownership of our health and doing everything we can to stay healthy with our diet and exercise. Our next headline just caught my eye out of shock from the idea that there are that many cases and that we're still running shortages on certain medications. The headline is, Dramatic Rise in Syphilis Cases Contribute to Penicillin Shortage. That's right. Syphilis cases increased by nearly 80% between 2018 and 2022, and they feel like this could be contributing to the ongoing shortage of injectable penicillin, which is the main treatment for patients with syphilis. Public health agencies now are recommending providers ration the drug. So they're asking for rationing of penicillin based on these increased numbers in syphilis cases. The second drug of choice would be doxycycline or doxycycline for syphilis cases, but it's actually discouraged in pregnant moms because of the risk of bone deformities in the unborn child. Pfizer believes, who are the ones that manufacture the injectable penicillin, say that uh, the shortage is actually because it's had a 70% surge in, in demand on that product. So the question is, what's taking so long? We know that the full production cycle 
uh, for injectable penicillin can be as long as six months. So it's going to take a little bit of time before the market supply actually increases. And the American Society of Health System Pharmacists estimate that 1ml syringes may not be available until April of 2024. This next headline really interests me a great deal because it has to deal with ACL knee surgeries. And I've always wondered, what did they do a hundred years ago before we came up with the idea of going in and repairing the ACL? Well, this headline highlight uh, says that a torn knee ligament can heal without surgery, study shows. For years, it was believed that a ruptured ACL, the anterior cruciate ligament, the band of dense connective tissue inside the knee that runs from the femur or the thigh bone to the tibia or the shin bone, had limited healing capacity. A lot of it was believed because there's a lack of blood flow actually getting to that ligament. But two studies out of Australia on ACL rehabilitation the most recent demonstrated the capacity of the ACL to self-heal, and a previous study showed the option of using a non-surgical cross-bracing protocol in order to help bring healing. Stephanie Philbay, the lead author in the study, stated, In our recent study, we found excellent 12-month outcomes, including knee function, quality of life, and stability, and 92% had returned to pre-injury sports. According to Ms. Philbay, there are different degrees of ACL healing, but in many cases, the ACL is restored to its pre-injury appearance through conservative management with normal alignment seen in MRIs. In a different study, we found that people with signs of ACL healing on a two-year MRI reported better patient-reported outcomes at two years compared to people who had undergone ACL surgery, she said. In that first study, it was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in November of 2022. Researchers looked at 120 active non-professional athletes from the ages of 18 to 35 who had ruptured their ACLs, and they managed it with either early ACL reconstruction or rehabilitation and optional delayed surgery. Data from that was collected from MRIs, radiographs, passive knee laxity measures, which is just uh, testing to see if the knee had gotten any stronger. And they looked at it at three months, six months, at one, two, and five years. And they found that Of the 30 participants who opted for rehab alone with no ACL reconstruction, 53% showed evidence of healing at two years, while 58% showed evidence of ACL healing at a five-year follow-up. So even after two years, there was still more healing to be done up to that five-year period. So that could be one of the reasons that people in the past did never have ACL surgery. Just something to think about. Our next headline should create some caution for us all as we reach for our medicine and hopefully cause us to do our own research when we're before we think about taking one of those meds. The title is Several Drugs, Several Common Drugs Are Linked to Dementia. Several drugs increase the risk of dementia, the most prominent being anticholinergic drugs, antiepileptics, oncology drugs, and sedative hypnotic drugs. These are all common prescriptions for older people. 
Many drugs prescribed to treat Parkinson's disease, for instance, are linked with dementia risk since they block acetylcholine in the brain as a way of preventing tremors and sudden movements in patients. Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that also facilitates that cognitive function that tends to decline as we get older as well. Proton pump inhibitors, those things that we typically take for heartburn, have also been shown in studies to increase people's risk of dementia by 44%. Within the literature, the most well-known class of drugs that induce dementia are anticholinergic drugs. Use of medication with significant anticholinergic activity should likely be discouraged in older adults if alternative therapies are available. Examples of some of these anticholinergic drugs are diphenhydramine, which is the active compound in Benadryl, Tylenol PM, and Advil PM. And they also include common medications for Parkinson's disease, such as benztropine, trihexaphenaldine. And it really is no wonder after you take Tylenol PM or Advil PM or even Benadryl, how you kind of get that foggy head feeling. Well, that's a sign of things uh, where it's working on your cognitive ability and long term. Clearly, these studies are showing that it's not a good thing. Antidepressants are another. Anti-epileptics, hypnotic sedatives, and opioids have also been shown to increase a person's risk of dementia. These, along with anti-Parkinsonian drugs are all psychoactive. And they quote in this article, whether a patient will develop cognitive impairment or not when prescribed a particular drug with anticholinergic properties is unpredictable and depends on factors such as co-medications, which may have anticholinergic effects. So again, just check your drugs, make sure and be really in tune to what your body is doing when you take those products. Our final three headlines today deal with COVID and no doubt will cause just a little bit of anger. Our first is no more five-day COVID isolation. Major CDC guidelines changing, according to reports. This was published February 14th in the Washington Post, which cited CDC sources, and they reported new guidance that will be released in April that will put an end to the recommendation that people with COVID quarantine for five days. Instead, they suggest people with mild or improving symptoms would no longer have to stay quarantined if they're fever-free for at least 24 hours, which really should not come as any surprise because we do that with every other viral infection that we get. Our next two headlines deal with COVID and pregnancy. And if you know anyone who's pregnancy who is pregnant or trying to get pregnant, there may be a reason or may may be a reason for you to look into it a little bit further and do some more research. Our first headline is COVID vaccine mRNA can spread systemically to placenta and infants of women vaccinated during pregnancy. A new report demonstrates for the first time the ability of COVID-19 vaccines to penetrate the fetal placental barrier and reach the intrauterine environment. A new report suggests vaccine mRNA does not remain at the injection site following vaccination, but can spread systemically to the placenta and umbilical cord blood of infants whose mothers are vaccinated during pregnancy. 
This was a peer-reviewed pre-proof that was accepted for publication in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the researchers presented two cases that demonstrated for the first time the ability of COVID-19 vaccines to penetrate the, fl- the fetal placental barrier and reach the inside of the uterus. Dr. Christiane Northrup, Northrup was quoted in this article, who's an OBGYN, as saying there have also been VAERS vaccine adverse event reporting system reports of infants dying of thrombocytopenia, low platelets, following maternal vaccination, and also evidence of infants having heart attacks in the womb following maternal vaccination. None of this is new information. It has simply been widely and systematically censored. Another OBGYN quoted in this article, Dr. Dan McDyer, said, To me, the recommendation of administering the medication to pregnant women was one of the most irresponsible actions in the history of modern medicine. I'm so disappointed that the entities charged with the mission of protecting public health, the FDA, and women's health, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology were derelict in their duties because it only took me about 15 minutes of online research to determine that these lipid nanoparticles were going to cross the placenta and infect the fetus. Dr. James Thorpe, who's a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist and maternal-fetal medicine doctor, which is a high-risk pregnancy physician, said the the paper shows mRNA from both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines can cross the placenta into the fetal blood entering the placental tissue. Tissue, And he's quoted as saying, these authors observed a notably high signal in the decidua, which is the lining of the uterus. This concentrated mRNA in the decidual tissues will be translated into high concentrations of spike protein, likely contributing to a myriad of devastating effects on human reproductive function, not just severe abnormalities of menstrual periods, but infertility multiple pregnancy complications, and severe bleeding in pregnancy and in the postpartum period. Dr. Thorpe also added that despite their horrifying findings, the authors still concluded their evidence overwhelmingly supports the COVID-19 vaccine's effectiveness in mitigating the morbidity and mortality of COVID-19 in pregnant and non-pregnant women. So again, they didn't come off of the, the narrative that pregnant women or women need to take this vaccine, even though the study suggested otherwise. Our final quote from this article comes from Dr. McDyer, who said, We know that spike protein initiates clot formation, which can result in strokes. This is all so sad, as it was completely unavoidable if normal, historical, precautionary approaches were in place. Again, they went against the whole narrative of our medical history and did things that we have never done in our lifetimes. Our final headline for this episode aligns with our previous one. It says this, government gave millions to American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to promote COVID-19 vaccines to pregnant women. 
the premier professional membership organization for obstetricians and gynecologists, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, accepted $11.8 million from the Department of Health and Human Services to promote COVID-19 vaccines to pregnant women, despite the exclusion of pregnant women from clinical trials and regulatory data showing the vaccine had not been tested for safety during pregnancies. Documents were obtained through a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, showed that ACOG on February 1st of 2021 was awarded the first of three cooperative agreement grants by HHS and the CDC. The receipt of COVID-19 grant money was contingent upon ACOG yielding substantial control over projects funded by the CDC to the agency and ACOG's full compliance with CDC guidance on COVID-19 infection and control. This is a cooperative agreement, and CDC will have substantial programmatic involvement after the award is made. Substantial involvement is in addition to all post-award monitoring, technical assistance, and performance reviews undertaken in the normal course of stewardship of federal funds, the documents state. ACOG on July 30th, 2021, along with the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, SMFM, began recommending COVID-19 vaccination in pregnancy. ACOG, founded in 1951, is the leading organization representing physicians and specialists in obstetrical care with over 60,000 members. ACOG sets the standard of care for pregnant women and obstetrician gynecologists generally follow those recommendations made by ACOG, just as pediatricians follow the recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The SMFM, or Maternal Fetal Medicine Society, has more than 5,500 individuals with additional years of formal training in maternal fetal medicine, making them highly qualified experts and leaders in the care of complicated pregnancies. ACOG's former president, Dr. J. Martin Tucker, in a statement on the organization's website, encouraged the members to enthusiastically recommend vaccination to their pregnant patients and to emphasize the known safety of the vaccines and the increased risk of severe complications associated with COVID-19 vaccination, including death during pregnancy. It is clear that pregnant people need to feel confident in the decision to choose vaccination, and a strong recommendation from their OBGYN could make a meaningful difference for many pregnant people, Tucker added. Pregnant individuals should feel confident that choosing COVID-19 vaccination not only protects them, but also protects their families and communities. Dr. William Grobman, president of the Maternal Fetal Medicine group said experts in high-risk pregnancy should strongly recommend pregnant women get vaccinated and that vaccination is safe before, during, or after pregnancy, despite the absence of clinical trial data. 
I think it's very obvious that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists entered into a quid pro quo arrangement in the early months of 2021, taking large sums of money from HHS and CDC, and in return, they signed a contract stating that they were not allowed to deviate from any of the CDC and HHS COVID policy narratives, according to Dr. Thorpe. This is firmly established in the 1,400 pages of FOIA documents, 50% of which or more were redacted. ACOG now recommends pregnant women receive their initial primary series and new bivalent COVID-19 booster vaccines that have not received full approval from the FDA. Vaccination, according to ACOG's website, may occur in any trimester and emphasis should be on vaccine receipt as soon as possible to maximize maternal and fetal health. The FDA's healthcare provider fact sheet, however, for Moderna's Moderna's bivalent vaccine states available data on Moderna COVID-19 vaccine administered to pregnant women are insufficient to inform vaccine-associated risk in pregnancy. Data are not available on Moderna COVID-19 vaccine bivalent administered to pregnant women. The FDA's healthcare provider fact sheet for Pfizer's vaccine states no data are available regarding the use of Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine during pregnancy. It further states available data on Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine administered to pregnant women are insufficient to inform vaccine-associated risk in pregnancy. Yet ACOG still stands by this idea that every woman and every pregnant woman should be vaccinated by this COVID-19 vaccine. Enough to make your blood boil, for sure. Well, that's it for this week's Frontline Health by CenturionLabs.com. While there have certainly been some startling and angering headlines in the month of February, I hope again that this month's headlines have not created fear, but instead strengthened your resolve to take greater ownership of your health. Remember, if we become our own health advocates, ask questions, use common sense, get disciplined in our diets and exercise, and find supplements that work, when we can negate most, then we can negate most of the fears when it comes to our health. Be sure to check out our other podcast at Frontline Health and visit centurionlabs.com to learn more about our products and other podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, go out today and take ownership of your health because no one cares more about your health than you. Until next time, take care and stay healthy.